Hi, I'm Dr. Gemma Newman, also known as the Plant Power Doctor, and I'm your host for the Wellness Edit podcast with Holland and Barrett. In today's episode, I chat to Dr. Sophie Mort, also known as Dr. Soph. She is an incredible clinical psychologist, she's a therapist, she's a doctor of psychology, and the chat that we had today was unbelievable. She shared so many great insights into helping us understand who we are and how we tick. Her book, The Manual on Being Human, was also discussed. She shared some practical information. And what I really loved was that she just gave us some very simple tools to use if we're suffering from heartbreak, if we're suffering from bereavement, if we're suffering from overwhelm, anxiety, all these very real human emotions. And she's there to help us. So I really enjoyed it. And I know that you're going to absolutely love this one. Hello, Dr. Soph. Hello. Thank you for having me. This is very exciting. It's my pleasure. I'm really excited as well. I think this is something that we need to talk more about. We need to be more open with our emotions Mm. and what we're going through. And your work is just truly inspiring. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. So how have things been going? I I understand you've you've got your new book coming out. How are you feeling? Um, Both thrilled and terrified. I think that's probably quite a normal place to be in a month before or a few weeks before a book comes out. I'm so excited about getting more than the basic psychology that we could have all been taught in school but weren't out into the world and also terrified about, you know, it feels quite exposing to have your words and your work out in front of so many people. Yes, I. it is a strange thing because it's something so personal to you and yet mm-hmm. also something so personal to everybody. It's fundamental to all of us. But I think so many of us try not to talk about how we feel, um, at least, you know, more than a superficial level. Mm-hmm. So to be able to actually understand it and talk about it more is just wonderful. And I'm sure it'll be very well received. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, let's perhaps start off by talking a little bit about your background and What got you onto this path? So um, it's funny because I think a lot of people assume that therapists are therapists because they're desperate to help people. You know, this kind of quite self-sacrificing good person who just wants to be there for others. And I would love to say that that was me. (laughs) Maybe it's a a bit you. (laughs) It's a little bit me. It's, It's more me now. But the reason I ended up on this path is because... Actually, at the age of 18, um, I had what felt like quite a significant fall from grace. So pre-18, I was incredibly confident, never really had even so much as an emotional wobble, really. And then at 18, started having panic attacks. And I didn't know anyone else who'd had anxiety or panic attacks. And the only place I could really turn was to the movies I'd watched, the media I'd consumed, where unfortunately mental health and um, anxiety, panic, and what we call mental illness is usually construed under the topics of mad and bad. If you think about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which is just, I mean, it's way before my time, but it's definitely one of the most iconic mental health films. So at 18, I was having panic attacks, didn't know where to turn, was kind of looking to the media and thinking, oh my word, this is it. I am now mad. I am now bad. I am going to be like this forever. I have somehow failed. I cannot tell anyone because they will think I am mad and bad. And understandably, that made my panic worse. So um, it wasn't until I got the right support and found how to overcome the panic and the anxiety and felt really empowered again 
and more like my old self, but a different version who is perhaps a little bit more empathic and compassionate that I'm basically set up my own personal manifesto as in, right, right, I'm now going to learn everything I can about psychology. I'm going to study and study and study. And once I know enough, I'm going to get that information out into the world. So now I do have that desire to help and share and be there for people. But it very much came from, I need to understand myself so I can survive and thrive in this world. And then I will help other people do the same. Well, I think that that's very wise. It's, <laughs> it's difficult to help other people to do something when you've never been there yourself. Yeah, and exactly. You've had that personal experience, you've had the study, and it does sound very altruistic to me. So... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think you're right. I'm looking back on you know when I was growing up and I feel the same. I remember watching One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. I can't think of any other film that particularly focused on mental health in a more positive light or at least a light that that made people feel as though we could all struggle mm. in one way or another. Yeah. Um so and that it was yeah, normal I, and human and there's definitely a way out. You know, if you think about even recently um The Joker in fact, all versions of the Joker, for example, in Batman, again, it's this idea that once you struggle with your mental health or you become an in inverted commas mad, you are automatically dangerous, dangerous to yourself, to others in society. So I think that narrative is still very much present, even though we are getting closer to a much, um, much more open and less stigmatized society towards mental health. Can you think of any um, role models or examples in the media now that have shifted the paradigm in, in a way that's sort of more positive? Yes, yeah, so many things. So, for example, um, did you watch that movie Inside Out? Yes. Yes, I did. It was really good. <laughs> yes, exactly. And in that, um, I thought what was so extraordinary about that was that they made it really clear that there's no such thing as a good or a bad emotion. They all have purpose. So that was one thing that I thought was fantastic. I mean, it made me quite frustrated that it took until, I don't even know what year it came out, but in the last decade for us to be talking about that. And in terms of people in the media, I think there's lots and lots of celebrities who are doing such a great job of raising awareness. And if I think about Matt Haig, for example, who writes all the time about um, depression, about feeling suicidal, about anxiety, and ultimately about hope mm. and how you can have a good life, whatever that means to you. Yes. yes. Irrespective, you know, even when you're struggling. Yeah, there's so many people right now genuinely making a change in such a positive way. And I would have loved to have seen that when I was younger, but I'm just so happy I'm seeing it now. I'm in my 30s now, you know, it's, you know, so it's only going to get better. Yes, it is. And, you know, I, if I'm thinking of the same film, I loved Inside Out. Is that the, the Disney Pixar film? Where yes, the, yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Oh, you know, I really enjoyed that. And the role of sadness, yeah. and how important sadness was. Yes, exactly. And I think as well, um, it's a long time since I saw it, but I feel like anger was really shown as an emotion that you, um, that is also useful and needs to be welcomed in. And I just thought, especially with the visualization, you know, a lot of work I do as a psychologist is often externalizing problems, externalizing distress, visualizing it. So rather than I am anxious, it's like I experience anxiety or rather than I am angry. It's like I experience anger and in inside out, because you can see the little cartoon, um, the beautifully drawn emotions as different images. It gives you a really lovely way to separate for yourself from the emotion. Imagine it as a separate entity that you can kind of live with rather than fight against. 
Yes, live with and in fact necessary to live with. They were the core <laughs> emotions, weren't they? Yeah. Yes, really yes, 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 exactly. So for anybody who's got kids out there, definitely check that one out. <laughs> or, or just any adults as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's never too late to be watching these things. It's true, it's true. There's a lot of good um, lessons to be learnt from these films. Yeah. Um, so when you suddenly found yourself in a situation where you thought, I'm having panic attacks. What's going on? Who am I? How, how is this happening? Why is this happening? Was there any particular place that you that you knew that you were you know going on the right track and thinking, okay, well, I need to find information here or here, or, or was it was it quite random? Was it more of a sort of a, a slow journey? Oh, it's a while ago now. I would say it wasn't a slow journey because that's not really in my nature. So I would say I had this massive kind of. I really mean, I went from being what felt like totally fine to having strong panic attacks. And also it's now I look back that I know it was panic. At the time, I honestly thought I was having a heart attack or I was going to die, which is a very normal experience for people who experience panic the first time. But my normal behavior when something is uh, a challenge, which is an understatement, is to try and learn as much information as I can about that situation anyway. So um, I immediately started, I mean, the internet is the best thing, right? It can also be the worst because it tells you, always tells you that the problem is you're going to die. But I was Googling, Googling, Googling and just found things that worked for me. So for example, I immediately enrolled on a 10-week mindfulness course. I um, started doing yoga. I then um, spoke to, eventually when I felt brave enough to tell someone what's going through, a friend's mum, who's a GP, put me in touch with the right therapist who I then saw. So it wasn't very long. It felt like forever. Honestly, when you're in panic, a week feels like years. But it was probably only two months before I was getting the right kind of support. And then not very long after that, where I felt like I could, when a panic attack was coming on, say, okay, bring it on. And then that caused it to actually fade away, which is quite wonderful. It is. And, and at that time, did you have any awareness as to what the cause was? Or was, did it just feel as though it came from absolutely nowhere? Um, it, I think with hindsight, yes, I do have awareness. I don't think so at the time because it felt very much like I woke up one morning and the world was kind of crashing in. Um, with hindsight, it was definitely a mixture of um, I place a lot of pressure on myself and always have done um, deep perfectionist tendencies, which when you've got a lot of energy can feel wonderful as it drives you towards achieving the things that you care about. But once you start to get tired, sends you to burnout and deep insecurity mixed with, if I'm totally honest, being like first year uni, just having too wild a life, which meant I was burning all of my resources, wasn't really sleeping. And it was just a one way ticket to burnout, really. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And I see that in my patients. And, mm. and I remember as well, my first year of university, it's a very overwhelming and, and different and unique time of life. Mm. Um, so did it change your course in life? Oh my word. Yes. And it's so interesting. I'm, I'm seeing a lot at the moment. There's a lot of people feel like they need to feel their calling, find their calling. Have you seen that? Yeah, well, it's it's a general theme, I think, on social media as well, isn't it? And yeah, I think there's we're noticing. I think the research is showing. Um, but don't quote me on that. So, in my experience and from what I've been reading, um, the more pressure there is to find your calling, the more anxiety and low mood people are experiencing because it feels like, oh my word, I've got to find this one thing in life. 
And what I can really contribute to that conversation is before I had panic attacks, I was doing art. I was designing <laughs> corsets. You know, I then had these panic attacks, which I thought were going to end my life. Um, that's not an exaggeration. And then I came out of it more empowered than ever, knowing that I had my own back. I was resilient. I could move forwards and that I suddenly had something I cared about more than anything else. And that yeah. was psychology. So to anyone who's listening, who feels like they need to find their calling, firstly, you can decide to do pretty much anything in life and change it at another time. And also my whole life was changed by the thing I thought would end it. And in a way, and I don't like silver linings, but in a way it was the best thing that could have happened to me because now I get to spend my days talking with extraordinary people who have found ways to cope with very difficult lives. Yeah, I I really resonate with what you've just said. I have found personally and in my clinical practice that pain can sometimes be the biggest teacher when we're on our journey of life and mm -hmm. it can and overcoming that pain is tr is tremendously challenging um or even just the simple act of getting through it. Yes. But even getting through something and living another day mm. is its own teacher in a lot of ways and can lead us to down different trajectories that we could never even have imagined. Honestly, before that, I might have even, and I, I, I you know, have a little shame to say this, I might have even before having panic attacks been the person who judged someone else for struggling. I was so hyper-independent, refused to even consider kind of in inverted commas needing someone or needing help or asking for help. And so you never know what's going to change your path and not, you know, often we fear something changing our path will be for the worst, but sometimes it can be for the best. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think one of the things that's come to the public consciousness recently is the concept of ikigai, which is that Japanese concept of yes. finding purpose through work. And I yes. think maybe... I, I spoke to somebody who'd said that, you know, they, they grew up in Japan and they found that that concept was actually, as you mentioned, tremendously anxiety inducing for them yes. <laughs> because they felt, right, I must find purpose through my work. I must be paid for something that I love and I must, you know, be giving to society in this way. And um, it can feel a little bit overwhelming, can't it? Also, so how do you know what you love, right? I think hmm. I had this best friend in school who from the moment I, for actually the whole memory I have of her, she's like, I will be a journalist. And not only was it something she loved and aspired to, it was very ethical, you know, I'm going to expose all these stories. And I was thinking, oh no, I have no idea what I want to do. And I honestly uh, think a lot of people don't don't know what they'll love until they, they try it, <laughs> test mm. out a few things, change their minds, have something happen to them. So yes, pressure off people. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we, we've been talking about the role of, of the internet and how useful that is for learning and the social media and how useful that can be for connecting. But I mean, there obviously are downsides. And so, you know, because Instagram is a key platform that you use to spread your message, have you had any challenges through that? And if so, you know, how, how do you manage those challenges? So I'll go to the challenges that would come off the top of my mind if we weren't already talking about what we're talking about in a moment. Okay, so let's stick with this theme that you and I are sharing. Instagram is an incredible place to learn. However, for example, messages such as just find your calling, do what you love are being spread, which is brilliant, much better than obviously like suck it up and get on with it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Weather the storm, even if your job is killing you. Like obviously it's so <laughs> much better to have a positive message out there. However, 
I think what happened is we've gone from having little information about mental health and about what's good for us to almost having too much information that's too positive and lacks nuance. And now we need to come back and find a middle ground. For example, absolutely. Hopefully do what you love. At the same time, recognize if you don't know what you love, that's fine. You'll get there in the long term. Maybe the thing you love is outside of work. Maybe you want to play tennis and job is just going to, the job is just going to make sure you have enough money to do something that you care about. And that's a really small example of many themes I'm seeing on Instagram right now, which are much more dangerous, actually, such as um, there are lots of blanket statements, such as um, if you're a perfectionist, it's because you've experienced trauma. If you're hyper-independent, again, it's a trauma response. Or um, even things like social comparison is, is a thief of joy. All of these things have some truth in them. Perfectionism is something that can arise after you've experienced trauma, as is hyperindependence. However, um, the research is showing that perfectionism is arising more and more now purely because of the pressure being placed on us by the media and what we're being exposed to every day. And this idea in society that to be worthy, we must be perfect. Hyperindependence, for example, can arise for many reasons. I have an avoidant attachment style, which is a very normal um you know, it's a very normal thing for people to live with. I think it's something like it's over 20% of the population have what we call an avoidant attachment style, a way of relating that means we need to keep people kind of at arm's length. We feel proud in our independence. You might be independent because of your DNA or because you've been told what's, it's what's expected of you. Likewise, social comparison. Yes. Oh my word. If you continuously open an app and find yourself, um, failing or less than, other people that you see, this will make you miserable. However, social comparison is one of the ways we evolved to survive as a species. You know, if we think about our ancestors, they would have looked around the tribe to see, okay, so who's succeeding in the group? What skills do they have? Okay, how am I in comparison to them? What do I need to learn? Or they'd look at people they're about to fight and be like, are you bigger than me or smaller than me? Should I fight you or not? So, the real downside at the moment of Instagram is these bite-sized pieces of information that lack nuance. And I see more and more people coming to me, even friends messaging me saying, oh my word, I'm a perfectionist. Does this mean I have trauma from my childhood I don't know about? So the risk, the way I manage that is I think now in Instagram, if I was to summarize it, is to add in the gray area mm. because life isn't black and white. That's so true. I really feel that 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 really resonates with me on so many levels. I think we lack nuance in so many different areas of conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, the thing that I've tended to talk most about on um, online is uh, nutrition, and obviously there's a huge amount of um, nuance in nutrition. Yeah. But many people paint that as being very black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, when I talk about lifestyle medicine, again, there's an awful lot of nuance, and in life. Yes. You know, when I see in my clinic, you know, there are so many different reasons why people do the things that they do, mm-hmm. why people say the things they say, why yeah. people choose the things they choose. And nuance is, is often missing when it comes to social discourse on TV as well. It, um, you know, you have to fit everything into a, a very short soundbite, being able to understand. When you bring in the grey area, it doesn't sound so sexy. It feels less printable. But um, I think you and I, as we're hopefully trying to increase knowledge rather than get sexy sound bites out into the world, <laughs> hopefully <laughs> can offer that grey area and not worry too much about whether it sounds like a snappy headline. 
Well, and that's that's why we write books as well, isn't it? Yes. Because we want people to actually be able to take it in, read it, understand it, yes. absorb it, and hopefully uh, gain something good from it. So, yes. yeah, I think it, it's a it's a good thing that you're doing this for your followers online and also with your book. And I think probably on that same topic of social media and how it's used, do you have any sort of advice about finding that positive balance between your real life and what you see online? Oh yeah. I mean, I, gosh, there's, it's a minefield of answers that I could give you. Um, firstly, I think definitely do a social media cleanse as in go through your feed and get rid of anyone that makes you feel kind of bad about yourself or that does these kind of overgeneralized statements that make you worry about your life and your past. First thing. Second thing is make sure you schedule in time when you're not on Instagram, when you're not on your phone, you know, um, research also shows that even being able to see your phone, even if it's turned off, decreases your capacity. So literally the amount of information you can hold in your mind. So make time, make sure you have time away from your phone, maybe hide it in another room. But to your question about, um, the kind of gap between real life and social media, I think one of the things few, I think few people realize is that um, social media is causing us so much distress because of things like the highlight reel, you know, this idea that we can present this perfect version of our life because of things like filters. What we know is the bigger the gap between how you present yourself online and how you feel you are in the in real life, the more distress you will feel. You know, I have people, for example, coming into my clinic. I've some, I felt like this, I'm sure, in the past as well, who say, especially coming out of lockdown, that they're nervous to see people in the real world because they've curated this image online that seems to always have this kind of um, filtered face, for example, the high cheekbones, the perfect makeup, the pouting lips that you can only achieve in a filter and actually very few people have. That uh, throughout pandemic, it looked like they were baking every day and thriving. <laughs> yes. And so they know that that image isn't how they feel on the inside. They feel kind of sensitive, fragile, as most of us do coming out of the pandemic. Um, and they worry that if they connect with people in the real world, they say, hang on, A, you don't look like that. And B, I thought you were fr- thriving. What's going on? So... Mm-hmm my kind of one thing for people to try now is to try and decrease the gap between the person they present online and who they feel they really are. Maybe that's a case of um, an honest post every so often, as in like, oh my word, last night I went to sleep with my clothes all over my bed. I'm such a mess. (laughs) Or maybe it's, um, wow, I actually didn't manage to make the bread everyone made in the pandemic. Or maybe it's adding an unfiltered picture every so often. So yeah, recognize you probably are more addicted to your phone than you you think you are. Take breaks and try and decrease the gap between who you are on social media and who you are in real life. That's really good tips. It's making me reflect on how we use social media at all. Like Mm. I I look back on my childhood and not even obviously having a phone, Mm. having to arrange parties with my friends by calling them up at their house and hoping that they'd be in. Mm. Um, And there wasn't really the opportunity to create or curate yourself as a person separate from your actual life. Yes. Yes. That's a really quite new phenomenon. And it's interesting because people often ask me um, why it seems like uh, younger generations are struggling more. And one of my answers to that is actually some of the research shows that it's not necessarily that more people are struggling now. It's actually that more people are feeling comfortable with coming forward to say that they're struggling. But the other thing is that 
I do think that if you grow up with social media, if you grow up with being online and exposed 24 hours a day, the pressure is never off. You know, um, I did have a phone like in my teens, but so it's been, you know, a lot of my life. But if you think before that, people could only compare themselves to their family, their friends, um, the people who live on their street, whereas now 24 seven, you can compare yourself to influencers celebrities. I mean, even influencer dogs, right? You can go online and find a dog who has more likes and more followers than you. The pressure to create a brand, the pressure to um, compare yourself is unavoidable now. And I think that causes a significant amount of distress that makes sense of why a lot of people are struggling right now. Yeah, I think you're right. And the other, the other aspect of that, which I think is not discussed that much, is the idea of then not feeling that you can escape yes. the image that you have created. <laughs> yes, yes. And I think, um, though, what would be nice is I talk to my friends about this and we kind of have a bit of a pact as in like, okay, so we're honest with each other about our flaws and our vulnerabilities. We jovially love each other and tease each other for the times we try and pretend they don't exist. And then we have a pact that at least every week there's something unfiltered that goes out into the world if we have to post, right? You are not trapped by social media. You can log off at any time. Our brain will say, oh, but what if I miss out? I guarantee you'll get more from living in the real world, talking to the real people in front of you than on social media. It's not dangerous to be offline. Yeah. So, yeah. Yes, good tips. So moving away from social media and just generally towards our emotions and our emotional Ooh. world, um, there are many things that we go through in life, which I think are fairly universal. Um, we all lose somebody that oh, we love. Yeah. Many of us will go through breakups, uh, disappointments. Is there a sort of a core um, attitude or a core piece of advice that you think would, would be helpful for, for getting people through some of these very basic and universal traumas that we all begin yeah. to experience. Okay. Firstly, don't criticize yourself. I think we live in a society that's taught us that happiness is the only acceptable emotion and is the thing we should feel and show at all times. But like you say, if you've lost a loved one, if you're going through a breakup, happiness is very unlikely to be the emotion running through your body right now. And so know that it is normal, whatever it is you feel. And when you notice the self-criticism or frustration that says, I should feel differently now, simply acknowledge it. I like to um, imagine, you know, when you're walking down the street and you see someone and you nod at them and say, hi, I like to do that with kind of critical thoughts or with certain feelings. I'm like, okay, Hello. Hello. I see you. Yes, I see you. I'm not, I'm not welcoming you in, but so much, but I'm just going to say, hi, I see you. You can exist. And then choose to do something that we would call, I suppose, self-compassion. And if you struggle with that, I think the first thing to think about is, would you speak to yourself the way, would you speak to a friend the way you speak to yourself? Mm. You know, I know people who are going in the depths of breakups, having the hardest time who are just so cruel to themselves. But if they were to sit next to a friend who was going through the same thing, it would be so natural for them for them to say, oh my word, I'm so sorry you're struggling. It makes total mm -hmm. sense you feel this way. I'm going to go and flip on the kettle and make you a cup of tea, give you a cuddle, maybe run you a bath. Mm -hmm. So there are a million things I could recommend, but the most simple it is recognize how you feel is normal and think, what would I say to a friend 
How would I treat them? And decide to do that for yourself now. That's a really good piece of advice. And I'd like to talk a little bit more as well about that inner dialogue. You said that mm. people are, are so self-critical. Mm. Um, is that something that, that has been you know, universally talked about in psychology? Or is that something that is relatively new? Because to, 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 I think a lot of people still don't necessarily understand or certainly weren't taught in school that there is an inner dialogue, that there is actually a voice in the head that says certain things and we can either choose to listen to it or not, and yes. that it's not actually necessarily us. Yes, it's, <laughs> it's so interesting. So I think, I think probably in the therapy world, in the psychology world, the idea of negative self-talk and the inner critic has been around for quite a while. I do think it's one of the later things for us to talk about in the world or amongst friends, for example, because it's actually, we need to be talking less about the inner critic and more about thoughts in general. I know so many people who, actually, I can think about the time I figured this out. So many people who still don't realize today, because they haven't been told, not because something's wrong with them, don't realize today that we are not our thoughts. Our thoughts are the words and the pictures that our brains string, to get, string together to make sense of what we experience. So, and absolutely, I'm really hoping that in the future people will talk about this in schools. It doesn't matter whether your thoughts are criticizing you or extremely positive. We get to observe them and choose what works for us because our thoughts are not only not us, they are often incredibly biased. They are often extremely black and white. They are often, um, I don't know about you, but we often jump to conclusions or think we can read other people's minds when, when we can't. So... Yeah, I don't know when it was that people started talking in the public domain about thoughts not being us, but maybe it is quite recently. Mm, yeah, I think it's important for people to recognise because, as you say, it's something in psychology that has been known for a long time. But you know, it's not something that's generally talked about, or you know, and, and people sometimes really still struggle to understand. Um, and I, I see that in my patients. There's a, a huge lack of self worth because. They, they've got this huge internal dialogue yes. going on about all the things that, that are going wrong in their lives and what it means and yes. catastrophizing mm -hmm. and, and none of that necessarily is really them. Um, yes, and, yes, yes, yeah. yes. So, and again, it goes back to my point earlier on about us being able to externalize certain experiences. So one thing I think is really helpful is, um, it sounds really funny. I think it's, um, from the Russ Harris book, The Happiness Trap. Have you heard about singing your thoughts to a tune? No, tell me more. I love this so much. Okay, so the first thing, I'm going to give you two quick tips about distancing yourself from your thoughts, whether they're positive or negative, just to get into the practice of recognizing we aren't our thoughts. So the first thing is to say in front, repeat any thought you have and say, I notice I'm having the thought that. And when you do that and you have finished that sentence with the thought, you're suddenly like, oh, yes, I notice it. I'm having a thought. It's not me. But this is the important bit. Then you choose to sing it to a song. So for example, Jingle Bells is normally the most uh, common. I can't believe I'm about to do this on the radio. But for example, <laughs> you'd say, do it, do it. <laughs> I notice I'm having the thought that I sound silly. Yes. <laughs> and normally when you do that, even if the thought is um, something really sticky and nasty, um, normally not only does it give you distance, there's a little bit of levity, right? As in you kind of, you relax a little bit. And this technique is absolutely not meant to make, uh, to make a mockery of how you are feeling. If you are struggling, being able to sing your thoughts to a song is not meant to make that into a joke. It's to give you the power 
to separate from even the darkest thoughts. And one of the ways we know that we can do this is by doing it to a song, for example. And if you do end up laughing, even better. Wow. So it's a way of helping the emotional body to separate from the the brain thought. Exactly, exactly. It's like the observing mind versus the thinking mind. That is fantastic. I'm going to try that out later today. (laughs) Oh, I go for some fun songs. I once did it with this person who did it to um, Rihanna's Umbrella. It was so complicated. (laughs) It was so funny. So yeah, try out any songs. It'll work, I promise. <laughs> that would be a hard one to do. <laughs> yes, yes. They realised they'd bitten off more than they could chew quite quickly. Oh, brilliant. Okay, so with that in mind, I would love for you to actually share a little bit more about your book, mm. A Manual for Being Human. Yeah. Now, first of all, I love the title because <laughs> it immediately makes me want to get myself a coffee. Yeah. Um, so, so tell me, what led you to write this book? So I suppose the first thing is what I told you about my experience of being 18 and just being determined to, once I'd figured things out, share that with the world so that people um, could hopefully have the information about what makes them who they are before they're struggling. But um, actually in the kind of shorter term, so I trained as a psychologist and as you, when you do the doctorate as a psychologist, you work in the NHS. So I'd worked in the NHS for quite a long time while studying. And then in 2018, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's 2018, I was driving away from an initial assessment and I just had this realisation that across all of the initial assessments I was having, so that's the first meeting you have with a therapist after you come off a waiting list, in all of the initial assessments, and it didn't matter what service I was in, I was seeing the same thing. So, for example, I could have been in adult mental health, children's mental health, um, children's autism services, I was actually in a brain injury team at the time. It didn't matter what people were coming to therapy for. I was seeing two things. One is a distinct lack of any, um, of basic psychological education. Again, not their fault, not the NHS's fault. The fact that we've never been taught these things and a lot of stigma. So in the first sessions, I was spending a lot of time giving people, for example, information about the fight or flight response, giving them psychoeducation around what was incredibly normal experiences that had become extremely distressing because we were misunderstanding them and supporting people to um, unpack, I suppose, the judgment they had around themselves feeling this way. So I was in the car kind of recognizing like, hang on, how come all the services this, you know, I'm seeing the same thing. And then I thought about the fact that that morning I'd heard, you know, this great claim that we were in a global mental health crisis. And I thought about how actually a lot of my friends and family were also saying, you know, why do I feel this way? What's going on? And I had this kind of epiphany of, oh, my word, we're not only not raised to understand ourselves, we're raised almost actively misunderstanding ourselves. If we think about one flew over the cuckoo's nest, yes. Or if we think about people telling us to chin up or it might never happen, you know, very few of us understand ourselves. So um, that tied with my experience of being an 18-year-old. I was like, right, I'm just going to write down a list of all the things that I cover off in my initial sessions that I think people could learn outside of therapy because it'll take the pressure off waiting lists in the NHS if we can get it happening. It will mean people will feel less distressed because one of the things we know causes more distress is beating yourself up, feeling stigmatized, misunderstanding yourself. And essentially that list that I wrote um, after I left the NHS purely to get that information out into the world is now a book. I mean, it contains way more than just the basic information. Honestly, 
I was trying to summarize the other day to someone what's in here because I was like, if you want to understand how your relationships are affected by your childhood or teenage years or right now in the media, if you want to understand your inner critic, if you want to understand modern dating, if you want to understand prejudice, suddenly I was like, basically, if you want to understand anything about what makes you you, what gets you stuck, if you understand what it's like to be human, yes, which is why it's, it's such there. a great title. Yes, it's there. Yeah, then it's there. So. Um, yeah, that was probably a long-winded way of explaining it, but I just get so excited when I think about the fact that this information that wasn't out there when I was younger is going to be out in the world soon. Oh, yeah, yeah very it's, exciting. It's, <laughs> I'm, I'm getting excited too. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. Um, right. I, I like what you said about how you know it's a way for people to almost... Uh, not not skip the queue as such, mm. but it's just an idea of saying, you know, there are not many people here in the UK, maybe different in places mm. like the US, but there are not many people here still who consider that they would go to a therapist, like generally speaking, oh, I'm just going to go to a therapist just so I can understand myself better, just to, so that I can live my best life without falling into a crisis. I think here it's safe to say that most people will find themselves in a crisis situation before they then seek out either NHS or private therapy. Exactly. I totally agree. And also what's, um, I don't know about you, but when I was little, my grandma had this manual. Um, I actually honestly have no idea what it was called. But it was like, you know, if you spilt ink on your top, she'd grab the manual and be like, don't worry, I have the solution to get ink out. Or if your gravy was too greasy, you know, those kind of things. She'd be like, don't worry, I'll get the manual out. She had the answer for everything. And it was just quite funny because as a kid, I was like, don't worry, granny has the answers. And growing up, you see all these manuals, don't you, for cars, for example, or literally anything. You want to sew something, you want to cook, you just grab the book. We have none of that for being human. And actually, a lot of the like psychology books that are out there that are brilliant often focus on one narrow area of psychology. Mm, but yeah, we don't have there's this. a lot of self-help books out yes. there, aren't there? Various yes, things. but there's not, there's not one to date that literally covers the whole experience. I mean, my book starts with the first breath you take when you come into the world. And so this book, I hope, is not only one you read in order because it does each chapter layer on your experience and understanding of yourself. I'm hoping that much like my grand's book when you were, she was, when I was little, it'll be one of those things like, Oh, I just had an intrusive thought on a plane trap platform, uh, on a train platform. I'll just grab the manual. Like, Oh, I'm going through a breakup or Oh, I just experienced a microaggression. You know what I mean? Hopefully it'll be a little bit like that. <laughs> I hope so. Where everybody becomes very um, uh, literate of their emotions. That, oh, yes. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to grab my manual. <laughs> yes, exactly. Before I'm struggling, ideally. Yes. Brilliant. And and you've you've already touched on some of the things that people can do. Um, you know, when they're going through something really challenging, mm. something that is is common to human experience. Is there anything that you'd recommend as an on the spot thing to do mm. if you're suddenly suffering from panic? Yes. You know. Or, or complete overwhelm? Yes. Um, I mean, there's lots, but let's focus on one thing. Okay. Yeah. So if you were in clinic, I'd start probably with breathing exercises, but actually breathing exercises are so much harder than people imagine they are. People leave clinic going, oh yes, I'm going to do it. Come back saying, too hard. So I'm going to start with something much more simple and that's called the 54321 technique. Do you know it? I do, but share it for okay. our listeners. Okay, perfect. So when our emotions start to feel overwhelming, it can feel a little bit like we're a runaway train. You know, that feeling of we're hurtling down the track and we don't know when it's going to end. Mm. So five, four, three, two, one will basically help you apply the brakes by looking outside of your body rather than focusing on the sensations that are making you feel whatever you feel. So to do it, you look around you and you look for five things that you can see. And once you've 
once you've seen each thing, you say it out loud. So for example, right now, I can see a window. I can see a fig tree. I can see a speaker. I can see a lamp. You get it? Okay. So say five things you can see. Next thing is say four things you can touch and actually touch them. So for example, I can touch the table. It is smooth. Mm. Next, you move on to say three things that you can hear. Right now, I can hear um, the rubbish man out in the street. (laughs) But also, sometimes when we do this, we can't hear anything. So you can think about the sound of your breath or you can make some rustling noises. So three things you can hear. Two things, two things you can smell could be your top if there's no normal things to smell in your environment. One thing you can taste that could be Mm. a glass of water. It could be your toothpaste by focusing outside of your body. Assuming you're in somewhere that's a safe environment, you start sending signals to your brain that you are safe. Mm. Even if you're surrounded by chaos, if you can focus on things that feel stable outside your body, again, it will signal to your body that you are not in danger. You don't have to do this once. If you feel like you need to do it a few times, you can repeat it. And the best thing is you can do this with kids. You can do this with pretty much anyone. And if you start teaching this to kids who are feeling overwhelmed at a young age, you're going to equip them with skills that will make adult life so much easier. That's great. And and is it very important to say it out loud if you can? Yes. Yeah. And in, so in doing that, you're able to take yourself outside of your brain and the things that you're thinking and into a safe world that yeah. you can see around you. Well, I don't know if you've noticed this, but often when we start to feel overwhelmed, when we start to focus on the body, when we start to focus on the sensations, if we don't have a good grip on, for example, breathing exercises or a sense that all physical sensations are safe, focusing on them can cause us to get into a bit of a vicious circle. Mm. If you're good at mindfulness, it's the opposite, right? You notice you can welcome things in. But once we start focusing outside of ourselves, we give our brain something else to focus on that is safe and is stable. And gradually we come back to feeling centered. Yeah. Yeah. That's really helpful. And I think our listeners are going to find that really helpful as well. Also, if you're somewhere where you can't say it out loud, just don't. It's totally okay. <laughs> you could think it if you're absolutely yes, desperate. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> if you're sitting at a dinner table with a friend and then you're like, I can see the fork on the table, you can say it inside <laughs> your mind. Don't worry. <laughs> That's brilliant. Yes. Um, okay. Well, I think, I think it's time for us to draw this now to a little bit of a close. Lovely. Um, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I feel yeah. like I've learned a lot. I know that people listening will have learned an awful lot. I guess perhaps my last question to round things off, going back to your own experience and when you were 18 um, and all of the work that you've done since, all of the things that you've learned, mm. what, would you, what would you say to your 18-year-old self if you could go back in time uh, and help her at that moment? Mm, I mean, I can have, I've thought about this a lot, actually. I really wish I could go back there and kind of take her in my arms and squeeze her tight and say, it's going to be okay. You are not mad. You are not bad. You are not losing your mind or having a heart attack. You are experiencing something that kept our species alive for millennia, meaning anxiety. It's just that right now it feels out of control and you don't have the skills to manage it. But don't worry. One day soon, you're going to find the therapist you need. You are going to get those breathing exercises and grounding skills, you know, so thoroughly under your belt that you are going to live the life that you want and maybe one that's even better than you ever imagined. Beautiful. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Soph. That was absolutely fantastic. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really hope that you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. Remember to join us again next week where we're talking to another great guest about how to fit wellness into your day. You can find all previous episodes of the Wellness Edit podcast via your favourite podcast platform or via the Holland and Barrett website, hollandandbarrett.com. All views and experiences talked about on this podcast are those of our guests and do not reflect the views of Holland and Barrett.